brought to you by Penguin. Friend sent me a few years ago something she saved from the high school days, and I would make a best dressed list every week, ranking my classmates in terms of what they'd worn the previous week. Oh my um, gosh, you were a colossal snob. You were certainly a sartorial <laughs> snob. I mean, oh my gosh. Hello, welcome to the Weekly Penguin Podcast, best branded podcast winner at the British Podcast Awards 2020. This is the place where we take a look into the creative process of our guests through a collection of objects they have chosen. I'm Nihal Arthanaika, and today you're joining me from home, which is of course where we're doing all of these weekly podcasts from. So please forgive any glitches in sound or any noises going off in the background, because of course this is a home with two kids, a wife and a puppy in it. So, you know stuff happens. My guest today is an author who has sold over 1.5 million books worldwide. His first novel, Crazy Rich Asians, was an international bestseller that has been translated into more than 30 languages. The film adaptation of the book became Hollywood's highest grossing romantic comedy in over a decade. In 2018, he was named by Time magazine as one of the 100 most influential people in the world, and his novel, Sex and Vanity, came out in June. It is the story of a young woman who finds herself torn between two men. And today, he talks to me down the line from the Los Angeles, in America, of course. Where else? It's Kevin Kwan. Kevin, welcome. It's great to be here. Well, thankfully, you have some things for us, because at the root of the Penguin Podcast is, of course, the authors bringing objects which have inspired their creative process, which includes, I believe, on this occasion, some sandals and a film. But first... Let's talk about Sex and Vanity and it being a homage to A Room with a View. What, in your opinion, Kevin, is the universality and the relevance of E.M. Forster's A Room with a View, you know, a century plus after it was written? I think he was so ahead of his time. I think that he managed to satirize the English upper classes in a very subtle, nuanced way. You know, there was a lot of love, there was a lot of humor, and he really understood women. And I think he understood how to craft characters that were extremely multifaceted. His Lucy Honeychurch was quite annoying, <laughs> I found, you know, and yet you couldn't help but love her. And that's the same thing I really tried to achieve with my Lucy, Lucy Tang Churchill. So he really was an inspiration point for me as I wrote my book. What fascinates you most? Is it is it class? Is it wealth? Because the two things aren't necessarily the same as we know. What is it? It's really human nature, I find, that fascinates me most. Class and wealth are just really the accessories, I think, that these characters drape on themselves. But ultimately, they're reacting from a place that I think comes from a very primal level. They're looking for acceptance. They're, they're looking for themselves. Um, they're looking for love. And that exists for everyone, you know, beyond class, beyond wealth. But then what extra layer of privilege, how does that distort them? Well, that's a good way to put it. It, it does distort, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, I think, the layer that causes the problems and the dramas. And um, it messes things up for people because I think 
the you know the Lucy, for example, you know, is is gets so lost in the impression of her world and how she needs to, you know, sort of arrange how she's perceived by her family. And that comes, I think, specifically from her background, you know, being mixed race and belonging to a family that has this long legacy of privilege and wealth and this sort of very elitist viewpoint on the world. Has your success, considerable success, made you more of an insider, part of a new establishment? I don't know, actually. I mean, I... I I've always seen myself as an outsider. <laughs> hmm. And I, you know, I, I think success is really a, a matter of perception and context, I think. As an author, though, it's very much about numbers as well. And you've certainly done the numbers. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Thank you. I mean, I have, but how has that changed my life <laughs> on right. a daily basis? And does that give me the influence that I'm perceived to have. It's a tricky question because looking at myself, you know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just in a room speaking into a microphone or I'm in my apartment typing on a laptop. And what you see on social media is not necessarily what my real life really is. So do you have aspirations to become a part of an establishment? I really don't. <laughs> I, I think I've been running away from that all my life. You know, um, right. I, I grew up in a, in a very establishment family in, in Singapore and I was really the renegade. You know, I, I didn't go to law school. I didn't go to medical school. I didn't go into politics. I went to art school, <laughs> you know, and I think for decades, you know, my family was always scratching their heads, wondering what I was doing. So, you know, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's something that's always interested me. And I think I've always stood on the sidelines as a and as observer of this world, but I've never really felt like I was part of it. Well, you certainly don't write about it as an aspiration for people. Thanks for noticing that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think people misinterpret me a lot of times and, and, and think that it is aspirational or, you know, there's a, a wanting for, the, for everyone to sort of belong or, or climb that social ladder. And that could be that couldn't be further from the truth. You know, I encounter these circles from time to time and I'm always amazed by how miserable they all are <laughs> for the most mm. part. Because I think when you're at that level of wealth and you're used to being so pampered, the only reaction is dissatisfaction, really. You know, why isn't my mojito more cold? Why do I not have a better deck chair with a view? It's fascinating. You know, the, the, the rules of engagement change. Let's go to your first object, uh, Kevin, which is a photograph of uh, women sunning themselves. Now, where are they? They are on these beautiful steps, these sort of tiered steps, by the pool of the Hotel Punta Tragara in Capri. And it's a very famous photograph by Slim Ahrens, who spent his entire career sort of documenting the international jet set. And this was one of the hideouts on Capri, where that happened, where these beautiful, beautiful women could just sort of display themselves on these different levels of decks and enjoy the sun. And this was, of course, important for the novel because of Capri. Tell us why Capri. 
It's a fascinating island. You know, I, in a roundabout sort of a way, I, you know, I first discovered EM Forces, a review when I was probably about 15 years old. And after reading it, I, I became obsessed with Italy. I, I couldn't wait to go. And I wanted to go to Tuscany and I wanted to go to Florence and discover all the sites that he had covered in the novel. And a few years late, later, I, I managed to sort of convince my parents to, to go on a family trip to Italy. And we went to Capri for a day, which is a huge mistake. It's, it's really an island that reveals itself, you know, with more time. But it is stunningly beautiful. And, and so I fell in love with Capri on that trip and promised I would, I would come back. And, and so I did. And, and so I have a number of times over the years. And every time I go there, the, the island reveals a different facet of itself to me. It's, it's so steeped in ancient history and archaeology and recent history. And I just think it's such a marvelous little island that blends history with nature. And I wanted to sort of evoke that um, in this book. And were you relying on memories or was it this photo or was there a video? How were you creating this in your mind when writing Sex and Vanity? Because, of course, you've been there so many times. With all my books, I sort of begin composing them in my mind and I let things sort of ruminate and marinate for, for years and years and years. So I think I must have started this book in my head about 10 years ago. And I've been to Capri probably six or seven times in the past 10 years. And so each time I went, I would collect experiences. I would collect memories. And I have a photographic memory. It's both a blessing and a curse in a way. But I do remember very specific scenes. I remember places well. And I remember dishes of food, <laughs> which is why I like describing them in my books. Um, yes. And so all that sort of stewed in my head for, for, for 10 years. So it was very easy to sort of take that and this photograph, you know, which, which to me is, is such a beautiful distillation of, of so much of what Capri is about. You know, there is this hedonistic quality to it. And yet there is... You know, there's a sensual innocence that you see on the island that I wanted to reflect in my book, in the romance. Do you write in one place? I do. I can sometimes wander into cafes with my laptop and, and just, you know, bang out a chapter there. But for the most part, I'm, I'm really writing, you know, at my writer's desk at home. In silence? In parts. Sometimes I cheat. Sometimes when I'm writing, you know, an achingly painful love scene, I, I put on Jeff Buckley, <laughs> you know, well, yeah. or Jake Bug. Or something. You know, yeah. I, I try to, I get help from there. Sometimes, you know, I put on some classical music, um, you know, with Sex and Vanity in particular, I was listening a lot to, um, believe it or not, the soundtrack from A Room of a View, specifically, you wow. know, the, the arias of Kiri Kanawa. You know, she she sang um, O Mio Babino Caro, which is sort of almost this iconic song that was used in A Room of a View. And so I was playing that over and over again as I wrote some of the, the more sort of sultry scenes. Are you usually that immersive? I mean, because that is particular, that's almost method acting version of being an author, isn't it? To surround yourself. I mean, it's so meta, isn't it? it you know, it, you're, you're the first person to actually bring that up. And I've never really thought about it until today, but I am. And I even, you know, go to the trouble of having pasta in the evenings, you know, when I, I really do sort of retreat into this writer's cave and I, I have to feel like I'm part of that world. I mean, it would have been ideal to have written the book on the island, but I also know that, you know, Capri, being there is so distracting. The last thing you want to do is write. 
So, you know, I purposefully stayed away from the island and just locked myself up in, you know, <laughs> in my, my study to write it. <laughs> Listening to Kiri Takanoa and eating pasta. It's amazing. Exactly. Uh, or or my, my version of a very sad panini. <laughs> I'm not sure that would go down well in a trattoria in Capri. No, to be no, honest. no. no. Yeah. What was the inspiration behind writing each character's educational background? Well, that was really part of the, that sort of in joke. You know, I have I try to put in layers and layers of jokes um, within within my books, and I found moving to New York. I, I was 21 when I moved to New York, and very quickly um, got into the social scene, and I sort of observed very early on that even amongst people in my age group, you know, these are people in their early 20s, fresh out of college, the first thing they want to know about you when you're at a party is where did you go to school? And not just, you know, where you went for uni. They want to know which prep school you went to, which kindergarten you went to. I mean, all of these, you know, for them form different bragging rights. And it's it's a way of stratifying you. And it's a way of also sort of identifying one of their own. So, you know, the first five minutes of meeting anyone, you, you play sort of the college swapping game. And I just found that to be both abhorrent and fascinating at the same time. You know, I, I can't tell you how many people I, I, I met that would just say, Harvard, Harvard. I went to Harvard, you know. <laughs> wow. Um, and I went to a public university. I went to University of Houston, which wasn't even on the radar of these people. There would be looks of horror Whenever I said, oh, I went to University of Houston, <laughs> they, they couldn't even comprehend it. And, and that, that amused me a lot. So, you know, that was part of my device of wanting to put, put that in the book. But I also think it, it, it's a fun way to tell the whole story of someone in their sort of educational resume. And I really had fun crafting the history of each of my characters, you know, where they went to school. And for the sort of people that are in those circles, it it is very important. It immediately mocks them. I remember um, this was just last week, a friend of mine, you know, who just sped through the book. She called me up and, and she said, okay, I need to know about this character. Specifically, why did she go to such a great prep school but end up at such a shitty university? What happened? <laughs> <laughs> and, wow. you know, I said, well, wow. only you would catch that. And that's, you know, that's part of the joke. And that's part of the amusement of, of crafting that story. Now, let's go on to your next object, Kevin, which is uh, a pair of summer sandals from where? Once again, from Capri. <laughs> we can't Brilliant. get away from that place, can we? You love this place. I, and, I, and I specifically love um, the sandals that you can find only on Capri. Um, for some reason, they sort of became the island of, you know, sandal artisans. For me, they're like flip-flops. I, you know, I, I was an island boy. I grew up in Singapore. And I just lived in, you know, my flip-flops, basically. And so I still live in flip-flops, but these days I live in sandals from Capri. If you were to be brutally honest with yourself, in what ways do you think you are a snob? Hmm. I think I'm... I'm very much a perfectionist. And that really extends to aesthetics, you know, I, I really sort of, I like to create environments that are aesthetically pleasing to me. And that comes, you know, it, it goes beyond where I live. You know, when I travel, I also try to seek out places that really meet those standards. So in that way, I'm a snob. And I'm also a food snob. 
but it doesn't e- have anything to do with... Even with your paninis. Exactly. But it has nothing to do with, with sort of eating at five-star Michelin restaurants. In, in fact, I, I really actually can't stand these sort of elaborate gastronomic molecular biology meals. You know, I have a great time making fun of them in my books, actually. Yes. I'm really, really sort of obsessed with finding the authentic the simple and the authentic and what's truest to a cuisine of a region or a place or a town. And then I will just keep going there over and over again, <laughs> you know. That's um, interesting. So, yeah, but I think that actually comes from my Singapore days. I think that Singaporeans were the original foodies, I, I, yes. I would think, because it's, it's such a country that's just obsessed with food and finding the best places to eat, you know, the best noodle dish or the best satay from a food stand, you know, or a stall that's in the middle of nowhere, you know, people sort of pride themselves on finding out these really hidden gems. So those are two ways in which I, I find myself, you know, sort of an avowed snob. Um, that's good. It's good. It's yeah. good. It's it's good. Yeah. I, I, I can't I can't stand people who mix sportswear brands in the same outfit. I just, I find that, I find that incredibly annoying, uh, but I need I, to get out of it. I can completely appreciate that. Um, <laughs> right, okay. By the same token, I can't stand people who wear logos all over themselves. Yes. I, um, I, I can't stand that. Yeah, Walking around you know, advertising a brand. Exactly. And yeah, yeah. I don't know, even from a very early age, I think when I was 12 or 13, I, I realized I, I hated wearing any branded things that would have a name or a logo on them. And, you know, I went to an all-American high school where everyone was, was, was obsessed with their logos. That really perplexed a lot of the people that I went to school with. You know, they, they, they just couldn't really understand me in that sense. I would just wear tie-dyed T-shirts and, you know, strange little things I found in thrift shops. Well, that's another aspect of uh, characters in your book is because you mention the designers, don't you, that each character was? Because it is, you've seen it, you've just said it. That again, it's another way of symbolizing their their place in society, what they wear. It's yeah, it's a it's a signal for other people in the know that are part of that world, part of that fashionista world. And I really began doing it because you know, in Crazy Rich Asians, I really deployed that sort of you know co- kind of rampant name dropping, brand name dropping, because it's it's mm. what I saw whenever I went back to Asia. You know, I, I would go to Hong Kong and for you know on a holiday and I'd never met people that would just so blatantly ask you, oh what what shirt are you wearing? What watch are you wearing? You know, who who made those glasses? Like they wanted to know every brand that I was wearing. And you don't sort of do that in the US. You might observe the brand, but you don't sort of reach around someone's neck and, and pull at their collar <laughs> to see what they're, you know, or, or, or grab their hand, look at their watch and, and, and see what symbols on it. And people did that with such blatancy. And it was, I realized it wasn't, it was just part of their behavior. It wasn't seen as vulgar. It's, it's a brand, brand name city that thrives on prestige and thrives on status symbols. I wanted to showcase that world, you know, in, in a, as authentic way as I could. So that's why I did it. Of all your characters, Kevin, who's the one that you like the most? Do you have to like them? Or is part of the joy of it creating someone that you just maybe not can't stand or hate, but kind of winds you up, to use an English phrase? 
I, I love all my characters, and I love to hate some of them. In the new novel, for example, yeah. Cecil. Yeah. Cecil Pike, you know, who, who is yeah. one of the, the key characters. I, I just, you know, he's, he's such a fabulous douchebag. I mean, that's an, Amer- <laughs> <laughs> an American term, you know, yeah. <laughs> that he was so much fun to write. Um, I, I don't know. I, I like writing more of the villain, villainy characters in my books. They're actually more interesting to me because I, I, I think I want to get under their skin and, and see what makes them tick. And when I give voice to them, I, I, I honestly don't know where it comes from. Um, when they when they begin to spout the most outlandish things, I just I often wonder. It's like, where is that monster that's hidden in me that, <laughs> that sort of <laughs> imagines these things? And but a, a lot of it is of, of course overheard conversation. You know, yes. I actually know people who are like Cecil who would say exactly the things that he says. Wow. Um, Let's talk about your next object now, Kevin, which are the paintings of Liz Marcus. Why? Why these paintings? Well, Lucy is a, an aspiring artist. It's really her true passion that she's found since her high school days. But she's also negating that in many ways because that confounds the expectations that are placed on her. I found that in particular the paintings of Liz Marcus, who is a friend, really spoke to me as I was crafting Lucy's story as a young female artist, trying to find her artistic style and her artistic voice. There is a beautiful innocence to Liz's work. She paints on raw canvas and uses acrylics and and allows them to sort of drip and flow and bleed into the unprimed canvas. And it creates the most sort of beautiful, you know, sort of visual accidents. But there's also wealth and privilege. She also seems to be interested in these worlds. Does she come from this world? I think tangentially she does, but I think she was very interested in the iconography of these worlds. And interestingly enough, I never made the link until this morning. You know, she she her paintings of the jet set are all taken from Slim Aaron's photographs for the most part. Wow. Okay. So that's a connective thread that I didn't even think about when I was making the list. Gosh, layer she, upon she, layer. Exactly. Upon layer. So she'll take this iconic portrait of CZ Guest, you know, who was one of sort of the, the greatest style icons of the 20th century in America. She defined this classic American style, you know, and then she'll take that beautiful photograph and then she'll make it her own. She'll reinvent it in these beautiful, very free flowing canvases. That's one aspect of her, of her work. But there's a, there's a whole other world in which, you know, she's painting baby dinosaurs and hippies. So she really straddles different worlds. And I think there is this conflict in her between the world of, you know, portraying the jet set and then the wildness of, of these hippie paintings or painting these aggressively cute dinosaurs. And there's that tension there that I, I, that I wanted to evoke in Lucy as an artist. Let's go to your final object now, life underwater. Tell us about life underwater. Life underwater was a one-hour television film made by a series. It was called American Playhouse. And I don't know if they're around anymore. I, I 
I want to say they're not, but in the 80s and 90s, they would adapt critically acclaimed plays into these little movies. And it was a film that I accidentally recorded one night. You know, this is back in the day of low-tech cable TV and VCRs. And I can't remember what I was intending to, to record, but I rem- remember a few days later playing back the tape. And I was at first disappointed, but I began watching it and was immediately sort of sucked in by the storyline. It's a very simple story of three people in the Hamptons one summer and the tension and the intricate dance that goes on in the seduction and the play of these three privileged children. I want to call them children, but they're children, but they're not. I think they're meant to be sort of late teens, early 20s. So it was a young Keanu Reeves, a young Sarah Jessica Parker, and an actress who was quite, I think, at the time, the most famous of the three, Haviland Morris. And they performed, you know, what was essentially a beautiful play by Richard Greenberg. And it was shot, you know, in this beautiful house in the Hamptons and in all the environments. And it really sort of connected me to that world in a very visceral way. And it it, it really, I think, was the seed of one of my obsessions of New York and my desire to move to New York and get to experience the Hamptons. You know, I, I thought it'd be a dream come true to to be like these damaged creatures <laughs> and spend a weekend out there, you know, in my own house of intrigue. Um, but it was also an awakening because, you know, what happens within that story, it was very revealing of the characters, but it also was a lens into myself. And I was, it really sort of reflected back how I was behaving in high school at the time. I was a very different kid back then. I think having come from Singapore, being a, you know, an immigrant and being so new to the culture, I was in shock the first year, first couple of years. I, I didn't understand the American public school experience. But once I did, it became very much a social game for me. And the next three years of life in high school, for me, became this almost like a social chess game. I guess I've always been an observer, you know, of, of these mm. circles since the beginning. But this time I was, I was playing in the game. I was in the game. I was, you know, sort of really sort of in the social mix. I, I remember I, a friend sent me a few years ago something she saved from the high school days. And I would make a best dressed list every week, ranking my classmates in terms of what they'd worn the previous week. Oh my gosh, you were a colossal snob. You were certainly a sartorial <laughs> snob. I mean, oh my gosh. Yeah. And I was amazing. You know, I completely had forgotten about that until my friend. Um, you should have been Anna Wintour. I mean, great. <laughs> Forget, you know, sort of, novel. you know, she took a snapshot and she posted it on Facebook of, of this list, the In and Out list by Kevin Kwan. And I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I used to make those. <laughs> Mind you, I'm one of three Asian kids in this entire high school. I'm also about three feet five all through <laughs> most of high school. I was two years younger than everyone else. Um, I'd skipped two grades. So I was not only smaller, I was, you know, I was less physically developed and I hadn't even hit puberty by the time I went to high school, I think. So to be in a tough public high school with gigantic football players <laughs> and to survive and not get shoved into a locker 
it really took a lot of social chameleon-like dexterity just to like get it get through the day and so that sort of became part of my armor i think and life underwater seeing that movie sort of revealed to me what a little asshole i was <laughs> you know in many ways you know i was 14 15 years old and i was like oh wow these people are playing a game that's just like the games i play i'm ruining reputations in high school <laughs> making a lot of girls cry with the best dress list <laughs> when they're not wow. on it and it really was part of my evolution into into being into sort of finding the old self of who i was okay you this know? is really this is really fascinating because ultimately you diverted away from becoming one of the characters in your book but if you were to trace some of the characters back into your book that is an amazing template Right? Yeah. Absolutely. That's, that's extraordinary. Well, look, yeah. let's go to a passage from your book now, which we're going to hear. This is from the opening where Charlotte has just seen something rather surprising. Let's hear a clip from the audiobook now. Dear God, please don't tell me Lucy fell. No, it's nothing like that. I went out to the edge and saw some steps leading down to a little grotto. So I went down and that's... Charlotte paused for a moment, stealing herself. That's when I saw them. Who was them? And what were they doing? Olivia, I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe my eyes, Charlotte moaned. Let me guess, uh, were they doing bumps? No, Charlotte said dismissively. Sacrificing goats. Olivia, it was unspeakable. Oh, come on. Nothing is that unspeakable. Charlotte shook her head vehemently. I'm so mortified. Lucy, my poor little cousin, has ruined herself. She's absolutely ruined her life. Olivia wanted to shake her. Charlotte Barclay, tell me what you saw. Looking around again, as if she had been caught committing the most cardinal sin, Charlotte leaned toward Olivia's ear and began to whisper. Olivia's eyes widened. Who? What? That was Sex and Vanity, written by my guest today, Kevin Kwan, and read by Lydia Look. It is available to buy and download now. There is a link in the programme notes of this very episode. And whilst we're here, do remember to rate, comment and subscribe to the Penguin Podcast. Please let us know what you think. Uh, you know, be nice. Uh, you can also find us on your Alexa-enabled device. Now, lastly, Kevin, is this going to be part of another trilogy or is it a standalone book? It's a hybrid, actually. Sex and Vanity is the beginning of a new trilogy, which I call the Cities Trilogy. And so while it is a standalone book, and while the story of Lucy concludes on the last page, there is going to be a through line and a link. And the link is through these different cities, which I really love and want to pay tribute to. So the first book really was my not only my homage to E.M. Forster and Room of View, it's really a love letter to New York and to the Hamptons and to Capri. And the next book, my intention is to create a Valentine to London. And the Amazing. last book, a tribute to Paris. So it's going to be New York, London, Paris, three different stories linked together by these great cities. And you might see the characters, you know, from the first book. You might see Lucy and George and Cecil and Mordecai and some of these people wander into the other books. But they will introduce new heroes and heroines. 
and completely new storylines. I look forward with glee to finding out uh, who you uh, create in your mind lives in London, a city I know very, very well and love so much. Uh, Kevin, it's been such a pleasure hanging out with you. It really today. has. Same here. I mean, you're you're almost like a sort of um, book psychologist. Um, you really helped me delve into worlds that I had not thought about for a long, long time and make connections I, I, I never would have realised were there. So thank you. It's been really fun. I hope we get to do it again when the the next book uh, comes please, out, Kevin. Please, please. I mean, since I'm going to be naming a character after you in the next book, you know, <laughs> um, we have to do that. Please make him someone outraged with mixed sportswear, please. Okay. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you laugh now, but if you see that, I mean, will you sue me for trademark infringement? <laughs> no, I will be more honoured than any person you could possibly... I would probably explode with pride if that happens. Uh, but anyway, brilliant. Thank you we'll so much. We'll try to much. make that happen. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers, Kevin. And just to let you know, we will be going back to fortnightly episodes next time. So you will hear from us week after next. Thank you, as always, for listening. Queen Bee by Jane Fallon. To recover from her failed marriage, Laura takes refuge at The Close, a beautiful street of mansions where she rents a tiny studio. But her neighbour Stella becomes suspicious of her and sets off a series of events that involves betrayal, revenge and hidden secrets. The house is magnificent. Even in the pouring rain, it's impossible not to appreciate the sheer scale of it. The horseshoe drive with a gate marked in and a whole other gate marked out. The perfectly manicured box balls, not a leaf out of place. The symmetry either side of the large columned porch. A small stone water fountain standing proudly in the middle of a complicated arrangement of low hedges. Three storeys high and the width of five terrace houses. It's vast. Never in my wildest dreams did I think I would end up living somewhere like this. I drag the last of my boxes from the boot of my car and look around me in awe as I carry it in. The other seven houses in the close are all similar, but different enough to give them the illusion of individuality. McMansions, really, if I were being critical. No history, but each one equally majestic, set in a leafy private cul-de-sac at the far north edge of the heath. It seems slightly surreal that this is going to be my home. From the million-copy best-selling author, the audiobook edition of Queen Bee is available to download now.